0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen, and we are talking Colorado true crime stories. And we are really overdue to cover a historic case. It's been since, I think, episode 18 and 19 that we've done one. I'll definitely be peppering these in a bit more. They just tend to take a lot more research. There tend to be a lot more books about the cases. And as you know, I like to be as thorough as possible. So something that you probably don't know about me is that one of the most interesting unsolved cases, I think, is the Velisca House axe murders that took place in Iowa. But something that people also don't know is that a number of axe murders through the Midwest happened in the couple years around that specific case. And little did I know when I was looking into it that a case, or actually two cases, in Colorado Springs started the entire investigation. So let's take a look at the road from Colorado Springs to the Velisca Axe Murder House. Okay, so I'm gonna take a minute here to geek out about the Veliska case, but I promise that we will focus on the Colorado crime here shortly. The Velisca axe murders took place on June 10th, 1912 in Iowa. The victims in this case were J.B. Moore, his wife, their four kids, and two girls who were staying at the house as guests. Their killer came in the back door and used an axe that most likely belonged to the Moores. That was an item that was typically around houses at the time. The murderer killed the parents, Joe and Sarah Moore, first. And they actually had to pass the children in the home to do so. I'm assuming, of course, to kind of get the adults out of the way and make it easier for them to then kill the children. The Moore's four children were killed next in the house, and that was five-year-old Paul, seven-year-old Boyd, ten-year-old Catherine, and eleven-year-old Herman. Lena and Ina Stillinger, who were two friends of Catherine's, were staying in the house overnight, and they were killed last by the axe killer. The killer then revisited all of the bodies and beat their heads individually until they were just completely unrecognizable. The killer then covered all of the bodies with bed sheets before leaving, and in a seemingly ritual way, the killer took time to hang a piece of cloth over every mirror and piece of glass in the entire home. Another odd message at the crime scene was a short keychain not belonging to the Moors, which was left in the downstairs bedroom next to a two-pound piece of bacon the killer had taken out of the family's icebox. After the killer's pretty long stay in the house after the murders, the killer washed up and left with the family's house keys. The bodies of the victims were all found a few hours later when townsfolk noticed that there was no sign of life at the house that obviously was usually bustling with children. The process of gathering evidence was derailed pretty quickly in the Velisca case. Around 100 neighbors and curious townspeople traipsed through the house a short time after the murders were discovered. One person even took fragments of Joe Moore's skull from the crime scene. In addition, the gap between the killings and the beginning of the investigation was about five hours. With the number of trains that left town, the killer could have gotten virtually anywhere in that amount of time. Investigators deduced that the killer was probably left-handed based on the blood splatter in the house, and while Lena had her nightdress pulled up and had no underwear on, none of the bodies showed evidence of actual sexual assault, so it's always been questionable as to if that was a motive at all. For those of you familiar with the case and with this house, you know it's a big tourist attraction now. It's on all the main ghost shows and it's a huge piece of American folklore. So how does Colorado Springs factor into this really famous American, what has become ghost story? Well, let's transport to 1911 Colorado Springs. At the time, the town was still famous for being a treatment center for tuberculosis also known as consumption. People would come to the nice dry mountain air. There was a number of different treatment facilities which were referred to as sanatoriums throughout the town and Colorado Springs was growing. Our cases take place at 743 Harrison Place and 321 West Dale Street, just west of I-25 from downtown Colorado Springs and Colorado College. Nettie Ruth, who was the sister of Alice Burnham, went to her sister's home and knocked on the door. But when there was no answer and she noticed a strange smell from inside the house, she ran out into the street to look for help. Now a side note here, you have to think, 1911, there's no temperature control in these houses. And we hear these nightmare stories, you know, in modern times about decomposition of a body in a house. Now keep in mind that there would have been no way to control the temperature in the home without pretty active management. So you could see how a smell could be smelled from outside of a home at this time. So the Burnham house was looked into and the police would make a gruesome discovery. But in the course of the investigation, when no one stirred from the Wayne house next door, the police entered it too. Both the Wayne and Burnham families were victims of an axe murderer. The bodies of both families were found several days after the killings. It was traced back that the murders had happened on Sunday, September 17, 1911. Three family members from each home were killed. Between both homes, the victims were one man, two women, and three children. Henry Wayne was 30 years old and was a patient at the sanitarium and had consumption. Wayne had moved to Colorado Springs 10 months prior to the incident for treatment, and once he was released with a clean bill of health, he brought his family out, which was about one month prior to their murders. Also killed in the Wayne home, was Henry's wife, Blanche Wayne, who was 26, and their daughter, who, based on which account you read, was either one-year-old or two years old. In the Burnham family, 25-year-old Alice Burnham was killed, and she was a cook at the Modern Woodman Sanitarium, which is now the Mount St. Francis Nursing Center run by the Sisters of St. Francis. Alice's children were also killed. That was six-year-old Alice and three-year-old John. It was clear that the weapon was an ax, and the axe had actually been found behind the Wayne home after the murders. This particular axe had been loaned to Mrs. Wayne by a neighbor prior to the incident. All of the victims had had their skulls also crushed by the axe blows. After the killings, the murderer went through the houses and the windows were covered with bedspreads. The victims also had their heads covered with bedclothes or sheets. And it was clear that the killer had washed up before leaving. It was found that the houses had both been unlocked and were easy access for the murderer. The axe did have a bloody handprint and fingerprints left behind on it, but no footprints were found at the scene. There were no valuables taken from the Colorado Springs homes, and there were many in plain sight. Similar to the Velisca axe murders, no one saw anyone enter or even be lingering around the homes anytime near the murders. These Colorado Springs cases were referred to in the papers, oftentimes as wholesale murders for the indiscriminate nature of the killings. But both the crimes in Villisca and Colorado Springs would not prove to be singular events. Colorado Springs was the first of a long string of axe murders throughout the Midwest and other areas of the United States. On October 1911, the month after the Colorado Springs killings, There were three killed in Monmouth, Illinois, and that was the Dawson family. It was the husband, wife, and daughter that were all killed. This case is a little unique because the murder weapon was a pipe, which I hate to make light of this, but when I read it, it sounded like a game of Clue. Also in October was the killing of the Showman family in Ellsworth, and this family was also a dad, mom, and their three children. In June 1912, there was the murder of couple Rollin and Anna Hudson in Paola, Kansas. A few days later would have been the Velisca ax murders, in which we know there were eight victims, six of which were children. Between January 1911 and April 1912, there were 49 victims in a string of Axe murders in Texas and Louisiana. These were also often killings of entire families in their homes. At one of these scenes where a family of five was killed, the following note was left Quote, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Unquote. This note was followed by the term human five. These southern murders were never solved. From May 1911 to May 1912, another 20 victims were killed in Atlanta, and these were all light-skinned African-American women or biracial women. In these cases, the first seven of the 20 were killed on subsequent Saturday nights, and the scenes were these gruesome Jack the Ripper-esque mutilations. In 1911 and 1912, Denver and Colorado Springs lost seven women to severe beatings, and this killer was caught. And I know you're asking, I could not track these down in a cursory search, uh, but I will let you know if I find something down the line. Mrs. J.B. Jordan was attacked with a club in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and she was not expected to make a recovery. The details were very similar to axe murders that had occurred in Colorado Springs, Monmouth, and Ellsworth. In July 1914, in Blue Island, Illinois, The Nezlezas, which was a family of a mom, dad, and daughter, were all killed. On October 14th in Hartsburg, Missouri, Mrs. B.F. Matthews was killed. And two children were killed in March and May 1915 by the dubbed East Side Ripper in New York City. These cases remain somewhat unsolved, but are believed to be the work of Albert Fish. Fish was a serial killer who preyed on young children in the area at the time. So that is a long string of killings to unpack. So let's look at some similarities between them. All of them happened at night when residents were sleeping. Many of the Midwest axe murder locations were close to train tracks. Eight out of 10 times, and again, we're looking at the Midwest cases here, the murder weapon was left at the crime scene. In seven of the cases, there was a railroad nearby. Three of the murders happened on a Sunday night. In four of the murders, the murderer had covered the victim's faces, and this was in Paola, Velisca, Rainier, and Mount Pleasant. In three of the cases, there was evidence that the murderer washed up after the attacks, and three cases were proven to be lit by lamps with the wick bent to dim the light in a specific way. This took place in Velisca, Ellsworth, and Paola. But how similar are these really? Let's break this down. So the murder weapon being an axe. Now this may sound gruesome and really odd, but you have to think at the time people were chopping their own wood, there was a lot of work of land going on. So an axe was a very common item in a home, and most likely left outside or left in a shed, somewhere that would be accessible to somebody not familiar with the home. In the cases that the axe was left behind, I would say it's pretty hard to carry a bloody murder weapon around with you, especially when it's the size of an axe, and hard to clean like the wood handle of an axe. The railroad is an interesting connection. It does remind me of Bundy using the new highway system in the Northwest to be able to move around for getting to his different victims. The note about three of the cases happening on a Sunday night doesn't really seem like a lot, and this seems like a fair assumption to me because it would be a quiet day when people would be at home. If you're looking to go kill people in their homes, you probably want to pick a day that they're going to be home. I did find the note about the killer covering the faces of their victims very interesting, and it makes me wonder if this is indicative of some type of remorse or conflict of the killer actually doing these killings. And again, washing up after being at a scene seems about the same as not carrying the murder weapon around and seems pretty basic to me. I'm actually surprised there wasn't more evidence of this at more of the scenes. And the last note was about the dim light used in a few of the cases. And this also seems like a no brainer and there wouldn't have been very many options to be able to create a dim light in a time where people didn't have electricity in their house. There are a few notes as you look at these cases that indicate they could be just completely random. In the Velisca case, a woman named Xenia Delaney had someone try her door, but it was locked just in the night or night before the Velisca murders happened and in Paola, another family had heard their lamp fall to the floor and when they went to check it out, saw a man exit out their window. So this does indicate that it could be completely random and that a killer just tried other houses first and it wasn't the house that ended up being the one that they would kill people in. Okay, so let's talk about some of the suspects and theories in these wide range of cases. And bear with me here because people fall on and off the radar in these cases a lot. You'll find old newspapers that like stuff is just kind of splashed all over and then you never like hear about the person again. So I'm going to hit some of the main ones. So in our Colorado Springs murders of the Burnham and Wayne families, Allison's husband, Arthur J. Burnham, was initially arrested for the killings. Mr. Burnham had lived at one of the sanitariums. He was both a consumptive, meaning he had tuberculosis and was getting treatment, but he also worked at the facility also as a yardman. There were a few things that ruled him out pretty quickly. He was at work when the crimes were most likely committed. And a fingerprint expert from Denver had been brought in to look at the fingerprint handprint that was left on the axe at the scene. But Arthur Burnham's fingerprints were so wildly different that it was pretty immediately discovered that that was not a link to him. And if you're wondering on the timing on this, 1911 was right at the beginning of fingerprints being used and really being a validated, verified way to identify people. On top of these, Mr. Burnham could have not walked all that way and back in his condition. At the time, the sanatorium he was living and working at was 10 miles from town. Now, I'm not exactly sure which one this is, but judging by the distance, I'm wondering if this was possibly Cragmore Sanatorium, which is now where UCCS is located. After Arthur Burnham was let go, tony donatel was arrested for the murders donatel was a 40 year old laborer and arthur had come home on a sunday unexpected by his wife and when he arrived at the house tony donatel was there and they were kind of canoodling but donatel had said that mrs burnham had hurt herself on a wire fence and he was just there helping with the pain and kind of just comforting her This is one of those that pops up in the newspaper and falls back off. So one of those leads that came up and went away, got ruled out for some reason. A local Italian butcher was also implicated in the crime, but released, although there was always a lot of suspicion from town folk. So that's all of the suspects we have in the Colorado case. The Velisca murders also have their range of suspects. The first one was a man named Frank Jones. And a grand jury investigation was actually held for the businessman, who was also a state senator. Joe Moore had previously worked for Jones. Again, this was the father of the Moore family that was killed in the Velisca Axe murders. But he had left and created what became a rival company for Frank Jones. And Jones's daughter-in-law, who was often the center of local gossip, was thought to have had an affair with Joe Moore at one point. While the grand jury investigation resulted in nothing, it pretty much ruined Frank Jones's political career. There was another man, so a man named James Wilkerson worked to try to keep Frank Jones from being reelected, and he claimed that Jones had hired a man named William Mansfield to kill the Moore family. Now, William Mansfield also had a couple of aliases. He was also known as George Worley and Jack Turnbaugh. It would turn out that Mansfield would be the prime suspect in the 1914 axe murder of his wife, in-laws, and child in Blue Island, Illinois. But Mansfield did have a good alibi for the night of the Velisca killings. And although he was arrested in 1916, when his alibi was proven, he was released in the Velisca case. Now, another odd dude comes up often when you're talking about the Villisca Axe murders, and this was Reverend Lynn Kelly. He was an English immigrant and was known for his mental problems and sexual deviancy. He had been present in Villisca and left on a train the morning after the family was killed. He had also attended church the night before in which the Moore family was there and realistically could have followed them home. The Presbyterian Reverend Lynn Kelly confessed to the murders at one point, but then later recanted saying that the police had basically beat him into making the confession. There has always been some question about his ability to do this, though. Kelly was a rather small man, about 119 pounds and 5 foot 2 inches. So there is a question of if he he could really wield an axe to kill eight people in one night. There was a grand jury hearing against Kelly, and the first one resulted in a hung jury, and the second did not convict him either. Now, there have been a range of other suspects and confessions in the Veliska axe murder case over the years, and you can dig deeper on that on your own, but these are really the main ones that come out quite a bit. In the Mount Pleasant axe murders, a search was put into place for ex-convict Charles Marziak. Marzak was already connected to the Ellsworth murders as well, which are also referred to as the Showman murders because that was the family's last name. But again, this is one of these that pops up in the paper and then disappears again. In the Monmouth, Illinois case, St. Louis police arrested an African-American man named Loving Mitchell, and he was charged with the murders of the Dawson family in that city. But Mitchell was confident that he would clear himself of all charges and kind of thought that the charge was ridiculous. Again, this is one that pops up in the papers and goes away. But someone who is attributed to all of the Midwest cases is a man named Henry Lee Moore. With the cases he's linked to, it's thought that he could have killed more than 25 people in total, including the killings of entire families. So the cases he's connected to are the ones in Colorado Springs, Monmouth, Illinois, Ellsworth, And Paola. Moore murdered his mother and grandmother in Columbia, Missouri in December 1912, and this was Mrs. Mary J. Wilson and Mrs. George Moore. The motive in this particular killing was that he wanted to marry a 15-year-old he had been interested in and also gain possession of the house that they lived in. He was arrested for these two murders and put in jail with a life sentence. It was this particular arrest that made him a suspect in the Velisca case as well as the others throughout the Midwest. The media really took a hold of the story, but he was never charged. Evidence was really insufficient to connect him to any of the other murders in any of the other states. And I haven't really been able to find a clear reason of why they picked him specifically, or if it's more just because he was somebody they could identify as killing people with an axe and so why not loop him into the others moore was released from prison on july 30th 1956 and the 82 year old was living in st louis at the salvation army center and little is known about his whereabouts beyond that looking back moore now seems like a pretty unlikely candidate to have had committed all of these murders The killing of his mother and grandmother was very clearly fueled by greed, and this doesn't really match what has happened at these other cases throughout the Midwest where there were often no items of value ever taken from the houses. The neighboring Wayne and Burnham houses on Harrison and Dale Street have since been demolished. One of their neighbors has reported paranormal happenings in the area, while others have not. Okay, so I just threw a lot of information at you. Let's break down some thoughts about this case, or cases. Musing number one. If you were wondering, here's a little fun fact. The famed Lizzie Borden axe killings happened in Massachusetts in 1892, so just about two decades prior to this string of axe murders. Musing number two. Sorry to not include more first names, families are referred to in this time frame by their association with the patriarch, so it's usually either the last name that's used or only the husband's name. Musing number three. Talk about timing, timing, timing. Had Mr. Wayne not gotten out of treatment and moved his family out to Colorado Springs after recovering, they wouldn't have been in that home and could have potentially never met the fate that they did. Musing number five. I found it interesting in going through these cases, first of all, how little I knew going into it. Villisca is obviously a very famous crime, but I did not know the wide string of axe murders in the area, uh, especially the ones in Louisiana and Texas that was 49 victims. That's huge. Think about Jack the Ripper and his supposed five or six victims and how much we know about Jack the Ripper. And I didn't know about upwards of, what, 75 murders that all happened in the U.S. in the same kind of way. It's it's just wild to me how differently we attach ourselves to different types of information. Musing number five. Okay, I had a weird thought when I came across the note in the Velisca case about the townsperson that went in and took some of Mr. Moore's skull from the scene. I sometimes come across as I'm researching some of these cases, especially ones that have more famous perpetrators, that you can sometimes find weird places to buy stuff. Like, I am looking up a case I'm going to cover in the future, and there's a website that is selling the murderers, like notepad that he had or something like that and it just put me in an odd mind frame of when I read this note about the skull it made me wonder you know is this are these pieces like Ed Gein's car that just kind of floated around and sideshow attractions for a while are they gonna randomly pop up on the internet somewhere is something you can buy it's it, it put me in an odd mind frame but it was just something that I thought of. Musing number six there are a couple weird notes from these cases The two that really struck me was first in the Velisca case, the point where the killer took two pounds of bacon out of the icebox and like put it in the middle of a room. And then you have one of the other Southern murders where there's the Bible quote followed by human five. And that was in a murder of five people. But it, I don't know, the both of them just... Struck me as very weird, like there's a message there that we're just not quite understanding. Musing number seven. So as you're looking into these cases, there is a book that has been written, and I did not read it prior to this episode because I really don't know how legitimate it is. It's called The Man from the Train, The Solving of a Century-Old Serial Killer. This book was written by Bill James, and he was really famous for his baseball statistics work. So I just wanted to give you that information if you wanted to look into it. He kind of proposes who he thinks could have possibly done these murders. Musing number eight. So the big question is, was this the work of a serial killer or is just everyone running around with an axe and they all got away with it? It is an interesting proposition because it was an item that was really easily accessible for people. And we know today about copycat killers and things like this. Was it that one started and somebody else was like, ah, I could get away with that too. Please let me know what you think. You can reach me at Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Well, that's it for today, guys. I am happy to say that I am resuming our normal length of episodes after some short ones in the last couple months so I hope that you really enjoyed this one I kind of really enjoyed writing it sometimes these historical ones can be a little easier to write because you can kind of distance yourself a little bit some of our last few cases have been kind of hard to cover so thanks for bearing with me and you will have some more really fuller length episodes coming your way if you don't already please follow or subscribe to the podcast This helps other people find Altitude Crime and it will let you know if I put out any midweek content. Last week I did put out some information about the Gannon Stock case and if you weren't followed or subscribed you probably didn't know it came out so make sure to do that. You can always find source materials for episodes at altitudecrime.com and I cannot wait to tell you about another case next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 33, 1911, The Road from Colorado Springs to the Velisca Axe Murder House, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.